Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Paul Holdengraber. I'm the director of public programs here at the New York Public Library, known as Live from the New York Public Library. As all of you know, my goal at the library is simply to make the lions roar, to make a heavy institution dance, and when successful, to make it levitate. It is my great pleasure to welcome back tonight Malcolm Gladwell. But before I do, let me tell you that after our conversation, which will last about as long as a psychoanalytical session if your shrink is generous, so somewhere around 64 and a half minutes, Malcolm Gladwell is very happy to take your questions. Um, good questions. I, I've noticed over the years, over a decade of being here at the New York Public Library that a good question, unlike my questions, can be asked in about 54 to 58 seconds. So questions rather than comments, there'll be a mic here, so you'll have to come up to the mic so that Malcolm Gladwell actually can see your face. I think that's uh, quite helpful to know where the question comes from. I would also encourage you to join our email list so that you hear about upcoming events. There'll still be two or three surprises this year. And I also encourage you to come to some of our future events. And when you can't come, such as tomorrow, because the event will, like today, be sold out, tomorrow I'll have the pleasure of speaking with a great magician and sleight of hand um, um, pro um, Ricky J. Uh, so uh, you will want to see that maybe online. It's live streamed as tonight is. And I also encourage you in about a month's time, three weeks exactly, to come to an evening where I'll have the pleasure of speaking to the Brooklyn Brewery co-founder, Steve Hendy, who will be joined by Kim Jordan, Charlie Papazian, and will be speaking about the craft beer revolution. What do I know about it? Very little. But between now and then, I hope to do a lot of research, drink a lot of beer. And I also encourage you on the, 5th, on the 6th of May to come and hear George Prochnik, who's written a book about the most famous writer in the world. That is, the most famous writer in the world in 1927, 1928, 1929, and forgotten for about 50, 60, 70 years. He was the most read, most translated writer in Mitteleuropa, in, in Austria, translated into about 50 languages. His name is Stefan Zweig. And now he's gotten a slow but sure renaissance of his work, in part thanks, I hope, to George's book called The Impossible Exile, but also in part because Wes Anderson, as you all know, made a movie called The Grand Budapest Hotel, which I highly recommend you, you go and see, and which was loosely inspired in one way or another by Stefan Zweig. So that will be on May the 6th. As you know, uh, for the last, oh, one last thing, 192 books, our wonderful independent bookstore has, I think, just about every Malcolm Gladwell book, and uh, Malcolm Gladwell is happy to sign his own books for you. Over the past seven, eight, nine, ten years, I've asked various guests of mine here to give me a biography of themselves in seven words, a haiku of sorts, so if you're very modern, a tweet. And usually I mention these seven words from the stage, but to, tonight I'll break uh, the custom and read out those seven words and have Malcolm Gladwell react 
to them. So without further ado, here is Malcolm Gladwell. Pleasure to have you back here. First time we speak together, yes. um, but you've had a few conversations on this stage. Do you remember the seven words you submitted to me a few years back? Because you sub resubmitted seven new words to me. No, I don't, uh, I, I don't I'm afraid. You don't? No. Okay. Um, you said in seven words, Father said, anything but journalism, <laughs> I rebelled. <laughs> I, I saw you do that, I rebelled, you remembered it. So, um, unpack that for me a little bit. Wait, that was the one from long ago? Was that, that was the one from, from long ago? That was from long ago. Oh, yeah. I don't know how many years ago. Is this number three now? I think I it might remember. be. Yeah. I can't remember either. Um, well, uh, no, I do remember. I, I hate to pick on my father, who <laughs> I don't mean maybe to suggest that he was. Yeah. Um, he just said to me, I remember having a discussion. Bear in mind that when I graduated from college was a time when Canada was in the midst of this dreadful recession. And my father said to me, among other things, that I shouldn't expect to have a job upon graduation, which I thought the kind of hierarchy of um, hopeful things one hears from one's parents, uh, it's sort of on the low end. But um, he then said, I said, maybe even in the same conversation, that you know, there, whatever I did, I probably should try and avoid journalism because it was a miserable profession, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I don't know how seriously I took that uh, at the time, but it has sort of stayed in my head. I don't think he's wrong, actually. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily the greatest of all professions, but um, he... That journalism isn't the greatest of all professions. No, I mean, he was in, my father was an academic, so he comes from this A kind mathematician. of... mathematician. ...cloistered environment, yeah, where no one ever checked up on him. He never really went to work. So I think his sense of what a good job was was quite different from the norm. But it, is, uh, but it is amazing, you know, it, it, it brings to mind, I'm sorry to be self-revelatory immediately, but it brings to mind how quickly parents can put you down in important moments. I remember when I got finally a PhD, mm -hmm. my father said, five years for just one letter? You know, I already had PH and just a D, and he pronounced it and said, Pfft, and my mother sent me a cartoon from the New Yorker where you see a maître d taking a reservation, and it says, is this for a medical doctor or a mere PhD? <laughs> you know, <laughs> lovely, no? Well, he was but I don't mean to put them down either, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Well, they were, there's a difference. They were reacting to something that you had already done. My father was warning me against entering a profession I had not yet entered. True. Right? True. So my father's being protective. Your parents are being... Um, um, yes. I think you're right. And yeah. I, I, I felt it that way. Um, 
Your seven words now. Resume sent to advertising firms, still waiting. <laughs> yes. I actually had an occasion, so I applied uh, in my senior year of college to 25 um, uh, advertising firms in Toronto, and I uh, received 25 rejections. Although, then I, but 30, 25 years later, I was giving a talk to some group of advertisers, many of whom were from Toronto, and I reminded them of this and had a great deal of fun with the notion that my application might be buried under some of their desks and could they all go back and look for it. I was still open to the possibility of working there. But, but you, you know, you know what, what strikes me is that in many of your, your books and articles, you often provide examples from the advertising world. And um, would, you, would you say that you admire that world? Oh, yeah. I, um, and what have you learned from, from well, that? Well, I just think the idea that you can tell a story in 30 seconds is astounding. I don't know why they don't get more props, people in advertising. Done well, a good television commercial is a story, right? And, but 30 seconds is insane. I remember I ran into, um, I've always wanted to do a story, I've never done it, but I've always wanted to do a story about tears, because I feel like. Tears as a, yeah, tears, about cr crying, tears. Crying, because making someone laugh is really easy. Making people cry is really hard. And in a society, we venerate people who can make you laugh, but we're sort of indifferent to those who can make us cry, which is crazy, because, like I said, I've already made people cry, laugh three times, right, in the first two minutes. There's no way I'm going to make any of you cry tonight. I, I'm just not that good. I don't... I well, well, yeah, but... <laughs> I've, you're the wild card here, perhaps. Um, but... So I wanted to do a story on, like, who are the great... You know, who, are the, who, are, who, who out there is capable of making us cry, and why? And I, I remember running into some guy on the street uh, who worked in advertising, and I was asking him about what are the great, weepiest ads of all time. And there are a couple, you know, there's the standard Hallmark ones, right? But his favorite, and he said many people in advertising think this is like one of the great ones. And I actually saw it, and I totally agree. It happened recently. It was a Google Chrome ad where a man is, it's 30 seconds, is sending an email to his daughter. And I forget why you know, but it's clear that, oh, the email is about the anniversary of, I think it's the anniversary of his wife, her mother's death. And as he types uh, the name of his wife, he slows down. It's, if you see it, it's just like you're in tears. Just the act of him, of the fingers slowing down. You're watching the cursor, right? You're watching the, the, the letters on the screen. And he's, he just slows down a little. That's just, that's brilliant. I mean, it's just... But Malcolm, what is, what is extraordinary about the moment now, mm -hmm. I don't know if people are feeling some emotion, but mm -hmm. looking at you now, mm -hmm. your eyes are half filling oh, with tears. I can't think about it without getting, without tearing up. I mean, it's, but just the, it's the, it's the, it's the specificity and the simplicity of the 
image, right? That's why it packs such a wallop. Because uh, you wouldn't, you can reconfigure that ad a million ways. If you made that ad a minute, it doesn't work. You don't cry. If it's five minutes, you, don't, you certainly don't cry, right? You feel manipulated. Blah, blah. It's, the, it's that idea. But do you idea. feel, I was going to ask you, I mean, knowing that it comes in fact from the world of advertising, do you feel manipulated? No, because I don't think someone sat down and said, how can I make someone cry? I think that, you I do mean, I may be being totally sentimental here, but in my imagining, the person who came up with that ad, that happened to them. That's where that comes from. I mean, I think, and I, I mean, again, I mean, I'm sure I'm being completely romantic in my notion here, but I don't think something that genuine can be, or that something that can provoke such a genuine response can be, f is, can be faked. I think it happened to it. I think it happened to so the guy. Do, do, I, I'm curious about this. Will you, will you maybe write a piece on, on tears? Yeah, I, well, because it was I think all... it's such. A, incidentally, if you do, there, there is a fantastic French book called Histoire des Larmes, History yeah. of Tears, which I will pass on to you should you write a book, and which goes through tears in literature. Yeah. It's the kind of thing I used to read, tears in literature <laughs> for the yeah. last 500 years. And I remember yeah. that particularly in a certain English novel, uh, Richardson and others, grown men would cry. Yeah. And that was part yeah. of a sign of both kindness and goodness. Yeah. No, I remember some of my earliest memories are my father would read to us. And mm. not, my father, not a overtly, my father was English. He's not an overtly emotional man. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, but, he, but, but he would cry when reading Dickens. And, you know, it is when you're seven and you're so, or six or whatever, eight, and you're so completely focused on this. your parents and their emotions, and you know, that's the, that's the game that you're playing, is like figuring out what's going on inside their heads. To have a father who, you know, that was the moment that brought genuine tears, was, you know. Do, do you remember the moment? Do you well, remember the I mean, stories? I mean, because in a way, literature is interesting in that way, because particularly if you read it to a child, mm -hmm. you're most likely, in that case, rereading something, so you know that something is about to happen. Yeah. And so there is a projection already in advance of that moment of sadness that you might be feeling again now in the presence of your own children. Oh, that's interesting. I yeah. I just, I'm, yeah, because they were clearly, I mean, obviously, the end of Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. You know, uh, he, you know, and you could Did hear he the, the tremor he, in his voice as he gets to gets to the, it is a far, far better thing. Um, and what is interesting about that is that literature afforded him that possibility. It was through the prism of yeah. a book that he could show emotion. Yeah, well that's, yes, you know, that's, is, here we have a very um, efficient explanation for uh, the, the greatness of English literature. It's, you know, it's an emotionally blocked people desperately find a way to, <laughs> to express their own emotions without anyone, um, knowing what's going on, right? <laughs> a little stealth, a little kind of stealth enterprise to allow them to do things like cry. In, in, in your particular case, though, in the presence of your father, mm -hmm. and I think it, it must, 
I, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm sorry this is turning into a little bit of an analytical session, but, but, but I'm, I'm compelled to, to ask you more about that because mm -hmm. by seeing your father so emotionally inclined, mm -hmm. by seeing him emotionally inclined to cry and to show certain feelings, you or a child also learns so much to read a face. Mm -hmm. And in reading a face, in this particular case, to read that a man, a full-grown man, your father, who at least to a certain point or for a certain moment you look up to, mm -hmm. is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And how, I mean, I'm, I'm, as I told you just briefly before we came on stage, I'm so touched by, and for those of you who haven't read it, please read it. If you, if you own the book, reread it. If you don't own the book, get it. Read the last chapter of Outliers, where you speak in so moving ways about your, your, your growing up, and your grandmother, and your mother, and the mm -hmm. Jamaican background, mm -hmm. and the fact that in some way that background is what the serendipity of that background is what permits you now to be sitting on this stage at the New York Public Library. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, was there a question? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there really wasn't. Um, <laughs> but that's interesting itself. I mean, that yeah. we, we need to have questions to answer and to respond. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because I, at the Let's time, I actually remember, if we go back to my father's tears for a moment, I remember as a child there were several things that struck me as um, interesting and odd about it. One was that we would go, we very rarely, um, as one of the things we never did when I was growing up, was either eat at restaurants or go to movies. We would go to a movie maybe once every six or seven years. And <laughs> actually, my mother would rarely go. My mother, who in her lifetime, up to about the age of 60, had seen about three movies. The third of which was the movie, uh, work, remember, uh, was there a Melanie Griffith movie called Working Girl? I think there was. Yeah. My mother saw Working Girl. It was literally the, third, the first movie she saw was in the 40s. It was Green for Danger. Then there was something in the 70s. And then there was Working Girl, which she saw on a plane. And I remember asking her, well, how did you? First of all, I thought it was so improbable that my mother had watched a movie on the plane. So I said, you know, how did that work? She said, well, she didn't get the earphones. She just watched it. And, I, and then I said, so, so here you're in this fascinating situation. Your mother is seeing, because we didn't have a TV either growing up, so literally this whole visual representation of narrative is a virgin territory for my mother. So I said, i desperately curious. And I said, well, how was it? And she said, absolutely marvelous. And I realized that if it's your third movie ever, even with the sound off, it's got to be fantastic. It's like just the whole experience transported to another society. This woman with her various travails that my mother was for lip reading and attempt to find out what they were. Um, oh yeah, so my point was, one of the movies we went to as a child with my father was some Christian movie about the Holocaust. And I think it was about Corey Ten Boom. Some of you may remember this. Anyway, it's incredibly teary, and we're all in tears. My father, not in tears at all. So we say to him, why aren't you crying? And he says, because it's just a movie. And so his, his position there was, it's fiction. I, why would I cry? And yet with Dickens, he would. So this 
contradiction was incredibly important to me because I figured out that it occurred to me that, you know, uh, uh, that there was some, in his mind, the, the book was doing something the movie couldn't do. And he couldn't articulate it, but there was something special about the way that Dickens told that story that afforded him um, an emotional experience that he was determined not to have um, when he went to the movie theater. And would it be right to say that for your mother it was the other way around? That a movie, though so rarely seen, did something that nothing else could do? And I'm wondering if we can yeah. connect that, um, I'm trying at least, mm -hmm. to connect that to some of the main tenets of your book, Outlier. So that in some way, if you see what I mean, mm -hmm. in some way a, a handicap mm -hmm. permits you to see the world in a different way. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, in, in this case, it's a certain form of dyslexia for images, yeah. which make the experience of watching this so much greater. Yeah. Yeah, or... Uh, or maybe, maybe this is wrongly put, I don't know. No, 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 it's interesting because, I mean, I suppose it's interesting to bring all this up because I realized that um, this was a recurring area of fascination for me as a child, which was the ways in which stories worked and didn't work. And there, because there's an added element to this, which is that I really, I, my poor father, I feel like I'm, he's taking a beating this evening. Um, keep in mind, he's just the most loveliest man you'll ever meet in your life. But he, my father is exceedingly inarticulate, as, as is my brother. And so the two of them, <laughs> my, as a, my older brother, so as a child, I would sit and, first of all, my father just, he hems and haws, searches for the right word, circles around, trails off, shrugs. And my brother does a different thing, which is he just talks and never, never really comes to any kind of conclusion. And as a child, I remember just thinking, I would edit from the age of five <laughs> what everyone else was saying. So it's like, there was, I was, it was clear in my mind I could do better than this, and that my role in this family well, you have. was to get to the point, yeah. right? Yeah. Just, it was sort of endless, so yeah, and it was, so there's all these kind of Dickens really working, you know, my brother, that thing not working, you know, my mother, transfixed by working girl of all movies. I mean, it's but, not but, Citizen uh, Kane. But, 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 it, <laughs> but it worked out for you. I mean, in a way, though that early memory of mm. being with an inarticulate, or at least in partly an inarticulate family, created in you the desire for something very different, yeah. which was get, I mean, it, it is, there is no doubting that every one of your books has a point. Yes, no, this is... I mean, <laughs> but I mean, really, I mean, and, and what is interesting in part is when I spoke a little bit before, mm -hmm. you said, I'm not sure there's a question here. I mean, this to me is interesting because, you know, even in our interaction mm -hmm. here, it is, you know, my role here is very definitely the one who's going to ask you questions. Mm -hmm. And your role here is the one who's going to answer those questions. Here, tonight, we have the great advantage that you're not selling a book. Mm -hmm. We're talking about 
all of your books, so we're talking about all kinds of things, and you're not on a book tour. Uh, you know, usually it is people up here, writer writes book and pays penance by coming to the library to present book. I've often wanted actually to do a whole event on book tours and blurbs. I'm fascinated by blurbs, how books are blurbed, who blurbs whom. You blurb me, I blurb you. I mean, that's how it often feels. Here we are in a give and take which is very different. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, in some form or fashion, articulate. Now, one question I, I will ask you. You see, you're waiting for a question, I can see. Um, <laughs> I feel I should loosen up, shouldn't pardon? I? I? This is, what, you this is how I interpret your last series of statements, that I'm, am I being a little too formal? No, I don't yeah. think so. You feel you are? Well, <laughs> no, I mean, if I might drag us back one more time to the Gladwell family uh, dinner table, uh, the other thing that never happened in my family from anyone was small talk. So you only opened your mouth if you had something to say. So huge, so around the dinner table, I remember the first time I was exposed to kind of um, other people's dinner tables, I was astonished by how noisy they were. <laughs> I just couldn't get around the fact that some people just spoke. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Whereas everything was very kind of orderly. You, you introduced a topic. If you had something to say, you said it. And if, when you were finished, you stopped, with the exception of my brother, who was rambling on. <laughs> but, um, and so it's weird to encounter a world where, where words function in a different way. Um, uh, and you know, we would periodically go to Jamaica as a child. And um, you know, that was also what was shocking about Jamaica, because language functions in a very different way um, in Jamaica, if you've ever been there. I think you have. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> get them going, those Jamaicans. My mother is an atypical uh, Jamaican. I think it's probably I why mean, she I, left. I think I, I, we've spoken about a, a, a festival in Jamaica that I so much love, the Calabash Literary yes. Festival. Yeah. It is unbelievable. I mean, I've interviewed a few people there. There's some noise here, somebody's phone must be on. Um, uh, it, it's extraordinary because there you are, you know, speaking with Voilso Yinka or Pico Ayo, a number of different people, and every 10 seconds you hear the crowd saying, yeah man, yeah man. It's 1,500 people on the beach, and there's a real participation yeah. that happens through language, which mm -hmm. is very exciting. Um, one of your pieces I very much like and we spoke about it quite recently, Snark and the Limits of Satire, and you quote in it Jonathan Coe, who says, laughter is not just ineffectual as a form of protest, it actually replaces protest. Yeah. And it, it's a piece about, in part, Dave Eggers, I mean, maybe you can explain a little bit of the context of that. Yeah, well, there was this, I actually regret weighing into this. You said that. There me. was a piece uh, by Tom Skoka in Gawker on snark, um, kind of celebrating the, the uh, nasty's a wrong word, but pointing out that the reason people are snarky is in response to something he called smarm, which is this the impulse to be nice, which he thought was problematic. Um, and I weighed in and 
against the better judgment of my editor, and my editor was right. Um, and because it, it's sort of pointless to weigh in on these debates, but I sort of disagreed, and I also disagreed with, at one point, uh, Skoka refers to Dave Eggers as full of shit, which I just sort of think, of all the people. Of all the people in the world to call full of shit. I mean, it's crazy. You just can't, you can't, the man is, this, he, he's, a, not, he's, not a, he's close to a saint. I mean, he takes the money from his books and uses it to build literacy programs in disadvantaged neighborhoods. I mean, he, is many, he may be many things. Full of shit is not one of them. And I sort of thought that I should sort of come to his defense. And the, there was a particular essay he wrote in which he was basically, it was, a, it was a, in the form of a kind of uh, a, a commencement, I think it was a commencement address right. to, where he was just urging people that before you are, he said, don't, it was all about don't be a critic, but his point was, before you criticize things, take time to learn something about, to do the thing that you later want to stand in judgment of, um, which I think is um, absolutely correct that uh, criticism is a privilege that you earn. Um, it shouldn't be your opening move um, in an interaction with some discipline. Um, and anyway, that, I sort of, it, that essay rubbed me the wrong way in a certain ways, although I didn't really express my thoughts. As is so often the case, you know, the first time when you weigh in on something, you don't get it right. I always find that it takes me at least two or three times to get so an argument right. How would you do it? Because you, you said to me you, you regretted it, but how would you do it differently now? Well, I guess I would say that I disagree with, um, there are a number of kind of um, uh, ideas in contemporary journalism that I find wrong. Um, one of them is the notion that uh, unless you are, um, uh, that the notion that the only way you can engage, critically engaged with a person's ideas, is to take a shot at them, is to be openly critical. This is actually nonsense. Uh, some of the most effective ways in which you deal with someone's ideas are to treat them completely at face value and with an enormous amount of respect. That, that's actually a faster way to engage what they're getting at than to lob grenades in their direction. Um, there's a kind of corollary idea. I was trying to express this, and I, someone was asking me some notion about journalistic practice, and I said that one of my rules is that no one should ever regret talking to me. That is to say, they should never see something I'm quoting them as having said and regret saying it. And that was interpreted by some people as being that I am uh, inappropriately critical, that I'm too easy on people, and that's wrong. I think that if you're going to hold someone to what they believe, make sure you accurately represent what they believe, right? So it's not that I, I'm only nice to people. No, I take shots at people all the time, but I want to make sure that you get it. You get it right. So I think this is debate sometimes in journalism. It's so inside but baseball. But it gets you angry. It gets me angry. Okay. Where people, where people will say, uh, you know, should you, you should never allow someone to see the quotes you're using from them. And I think that's the most absurd thing in the world. Of course you will let them see what, you know, 
when, you're, when I'm talking with you and I'm trying to get the, at the root of what you believe about something, we may take, we could take 20 minutes or half an hour or two days to get to the root of it, right? The way I express my thoughts the first time around is never, almost never, the uh, accurate reflection of what I believe. In journalism, though, if you say something the first time around and then you call it the next day and say, actually, I've thought about it, what I really mean is this, the journalist will say, sorry, I got you. You know, I had, I've had this experience with people. I'm just like, this is crazy. I thought you were interested in what I believed. I've thought about it. This is what I believe. And they'll say, well, I have you on tape saying X. It's like, what game are we playing? It's like, it's like the psychoanalyst, since you've been returning to that model this evening. <laughs> I mean, the equivalent is, it's, is the psychoanalyst, after the first session, says, all right, I know it now. I'm publishing. You know, I, I have you down. No, it's nonsense. So it's, there's, a, there's a code of sort of conduct among journalists, which is um, completely out of step with what we know about human nature, right? I can go, I have other ones that I have problems I have. Well, we, we'll, we'll come back to journalism in, in a moment. You were talking about Dave Eggers nearly being a saint, and we know mm -hmm. of the various um, uh, ways in which he's trying to help literacy. Mm -hmm. uh, 826 would be mm -hmm. one, one fantastic emanation of that, where he's trying to help teenagers really to learn how to, to write and to be exposed to works of literary imagination. Um, I am compelled to ask you, uh, given that we are here in, in a library, um, about some of the comments you've made, um, since we do have here the president yeah. of the New York Public Library. So be, you can say something now and take it back and we can talk about it later. Yeah. But, <laughs> but for, for now, I'm, I, I don't know, um, is that fair? Yeah, well, why not? Um, I know exactly what's happening. Go on. Um, <laughs> okay, then I'll do something else. No, but um, in the New York Observer, Malcolm Gladwell hates the main branch of the New York Public Library, thinks we should replace it with luxury condos. Ever the contrarian, Malcolm Gladwell is once again championing an argument that goes against popular opinion. While a lot of New Yorkers are worried that Norman Foster's redesign will ruin the beloved New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue, Malcolm Gladwell could care less about preserving the massive money sink of a mausoleum and thinks we should tear the thing down and build condos. Every time I turn around, there's some new extravagant renovation going on in the main building. Why? In my mind, all the New York Public Library should be focused on is keeping small libraries is open on its branches all over the city, Mr. Gladwell said, at Book Expo America in New York, in the New York Forum. Um. I think I've made my feelings plain. I don't know what more there is to say. Uh, I will only add that I didn't suggest the building be, turned, be torn down. Then that would... Uh, that would defeat the purpose. That I would think, certainly put me at I risk. I think this thing, it would make for a really lovely luxury condos. I mean, that would be the, you'd want to trade, I think, on the historical value of the property. Um, no, my point was, uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in a perhaps overly provocative way. In a contrarian um, way. In a, yeah. in a, well, I was having a little bit of fun. Yeah, of course. Um, my point was simply that I do sometimes wonder whether the cart leads the horse when it comes to the library, that, um, that we get so focused on maintaining this gorgeous building 
that we can lose sight of what libraries, the, the role that libraries play in urban environments. And that I would hate to be in a, I guess the, the, the reasonable version of my position is, um, I, I, I truly hope we're never in a position where we put the needs of the main branch ahead of the, uh, of the needs of the branch libraries um, throughout the city because they perform a social function, which I think is ultimately more important. Given that, we have to, given that we have to choose, right? We don't have infinite resources. My vote would be make the branch libraries out in the boroughs uh, the priority, and this should be the poor stepchild. Um, and I worry sometimes that it gets reversed. That's, that's my position. And by the way, it is only in the bizarre universe of New York City is that position considered contrarian. What's contrarian about it? I'm saying that billionaires spending huge amounts of money to prop up aging, elaborate buildings should not come at the expense of creating a safe haven for poor kids. That's not contrarian, right? <laughs> That's the opposite of contrarian. The contrarian position is... Is what? Is to... Is, is, to, is to burnish the bauble. That's contrarian at a time when there are, you know, this, this is a side issue, but this, this, the, this, our value system has gotten so turned upside down that we're, you know, what do you mean to say you don't think that, you know, we should be, you know, adding, you know, I just, no, I won't go on. No, but I, I mean, the, 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 no, but the, you, you, we can go on for a moment, given, yeah. given, um, there's, there's some kind of a noise here. I don't know if somebody's phone is on or maybe it's something. Do you hear it? Yeah. It's like birds tweeting. I it's like birds I think tweeting. It's I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really mind it, but it is yeah. constant. <laughs> um, and I, I'm thinking that maybe you will find it um, if you look for it. Um, there's, um, I mean, yes, uh, there, there may be kind of an edifice complex yeah. going on. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I, will, I was, I was um, having a little bit of fun. Fun. But, but um, let, to, have a, to still continue to have thoughtful fun about this, now it's a bit louder, but to continue to have um, a, a bit of thoughtful fun about this, um, you, you quickly said, what are libraries for? Yeah. And I, I do wonder if you can answer that question that you put to yourself. I mean, well, what, I mean, they have many, you, they, you, they, they have ma I mean, there are 10 different things that they're for. It so happens that in a city like New York, they have a very particular social function in disadvantaged neighborhoods, which is irreplaceable um, and absolutely crucial to, um, as I can say, as, as a kind of safe haven and as the only access that many people have to books, to the internet, to a place to study to, um, and unfortunately, um, those, that, uh, uh, those needs are um, under fire, right? I mean, so I just, I, it's, it's um, there's a separate function, which is the library as a research facility, um, but at the same time, and then here I'm being completely kind of cold and callous, in the island of Manhattan, I would point out, there are two other world-class research facilities. It's not like if we waved a wand and this didn't exist, there would be nowhere to find... You, you mean Columbia and Columbia NYU? Columbia and NYU. Yeah. You know, and 
you have to ask, this is a, a, a question that I always come to as an outsider to America time and time again. And you uh, feel like an outsider. You continue to feel like it yeah, in some ways. Yeah, I think so. But I'm always struck by this one fact about American society, which is that uh, the obsession with, in this society with the top end at the expense of everything else. And the amount of time and attention and worrying and hand-wringing about what happens between the 80th and the 100th percentile. So, uh, yes, there is an important research, high-level research function here, but there are other resources out there, right? I'm far more concerned with what goes on in the 30th, 40th, and 50th percentile in the city. Just as, you know, it's the same story in education and in healthcare, time yeah, and time yeah. again, uh, I was going to say we, but of course I'm not a citizen, am I? You do this thing <laughs> where you just ring, like, you, how many t stories in the New York Times have I read about people worried about cuts to gifted student programs in education? Of all the people to worry about in the educational system, gifted kids at the bottom of the list. Why? They're gifted! Right? If you're gifted, you don't need a whole, that's the whole point of being gifted, is my, my right, understanding, yeah. right? If you have an IQ, you can do it on your own, right? A high IQ. You don't need, it's like crazy. Oh, I worry what'll happen to these smart kids if they're not. <laughs> the system is set up to make, give a wonderful future to smart kids. That's not what I'm concerned about here, right? Same thing with, the same story you see in, in, in healthcare, right? The kind of, what does, what does each newly minted billionaire do? They endow a new wing at Sloan Kettering. Of all the places <laughs> to endow a new wing, why would you pick Sloan Kettering, right? Why does the greatest cancer hospital in the world need another wing, right? It's crazy. And it's this thing, it's this impulse in American society which completely baffles me every time I see it. So. What's to do? Well, I mean, move, move back I, to Canada, I think, where it, that's uh, probably what um, I should do. <laughs> seriously. Does that worry you? Well, what, what, well I, I we'll would... We'll take you too, Paul. No, I... Well, listen, I... Probably pull some strings? Last... Two weeks ago, I interviewed someone in Winnipeg. Oh, dear. Wow. Yes. And the, in, <laughs> when I crossed the border in Toronto, um, you know, you go from yeah. the man, I said I had only been Make there one like day, and he said, oh, well, that, you were in Winterpeg. I mean, he finds yes, it that's very, what they call it, it's quite, 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 but no, but seriously, um, lots of billionaires, ah, it stopped. Lots of billionaires, lots of people wanting to help um, in one way or another. How do you create a more just environment? I mean, this is what, in, in some ways, I've, in rereading your oeuvre now over the last uh, couple of weeks, I see a real activist desire, an, act, a, 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 an activist stance in your work. Yeah. Um, which I think is not spoken about enough in some sense. And you know, here, I think on stage, just in the last five minutes, there is kind of a call to action, but I'm not sure what action to take. So help me. I mean, short of going to Canada, help me. <laughs> I mean... Wow, it's not a, here it's back. Um, uh, well, you know, I mean, there are obvious things, elect different people, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, 
I, think, I don't think that the problem here is a, uh, uh, a lack of understanding about how to bring about change. I think the problem here is a motivation to bring about change. I mean, we all know what to do. Um, we've done it before. FDR in the 1930s addressed many of the same problems we have now. There's a template for doing it. You mean rebuilding the infrastructure, is that what you're... Yeah, taxing, yeah. you know, rebuilding, building social institutions that help bridge the gap, I mean, and political institutions that do that. I mean, there's a, there's not, this is not rocket science. Um, yeah, it, it, I think it's birds that have been introduced. I, I, just, I, it, I think it's part of the ambiance. It, I, I must tell you, in a decade being here, it's the first time I hear this sound. I'm, I'm not sure whether I like it or dislike it, but it's, <laughs> it's very present. Um, I, um, let me, let me uh, change the subject for a moment and bring about your most recent piece mm -hmm. in the current, the previous issue, the March 31st issue, of the New Yorker. Um, you write about the Davidians. <laughs> you write about David Koresh. Why now? Why now? Why? And, and it's, I mean, it's so interesting. You have this lines, Americans aren't. I mean, the, in a way, the lessons from, from Waco, Americans, I feel like I'm competing, Americans aren't very good at respecting the freedom of others to be so obnoxiously different. Yeah. So I'm... I'm Why did I... Well, you know, uh, part of it is, I, is I, I've lost interest as I've... Uh, I, I, I'm not as convinced anymore of the that it's, you need to always be timely. You know, like, so what if it happened 20 years ago? Um, I mean, I had a book, the loose premise for the article was a, that there was a memoir that had just come out by a Branch Davidian survivor. So I had a kind of, that kind of peg. But the question, it struck, it struck me that Waco, Waco really is, um, uh, I think, an, in the kind of, in the kind of, uh, in modern American history is an extremely, crucial event. Why? Um, because it is basically the, uh, the law enforcement authorities in America put together an army and use it to murder a group of largely law-abiding Americans for no particularly good reason. That's an unprecedented event, um, at least in the last hundred years or so. Uh, and it struck me that and they uh, did this because they just... They didn't have a good reason. They, they initially, had they had to trumped up char uh, a series of trumped up charges about uh, gun charges against David Koresh, which, by the way, all they had to do was serve a warrant on David Koresh when he drove into town every day, as he did, which they chose not to do. They chose to storm the compound um, for no particularly good reason, then to bring in a small army and, after there was a gunfight, surround the compound, and then when they just ran out of patience, to burn the compound down. It's essentially the story of Waco. This is an outrageous story. This is, there were 75 people inside who were American citizens, who were basically, whose main interest was in Bible study. I mean, they weren't out to kind of subvert larger American society. It's a crazy episode. And if you go back and you re read it closely, you can't help but be alarmed and to say, 
you know, wow, what does this tell us about? What does it tell us? Because in a sense, it tells us, I, I feel that you were being, um, you know, like Nietzsche who wanted to be atemporal, who wanted to write things mm -hmm. against the grain and not of his time to really speak of his time. It took me by surprise when I read the mm -hmm. piece that you were writing about, for sure, a very important event in American history, but one that happened, at least it seems, in a weekly uh, journal, mm -hmm. Old and yet it's it seemed so. very well. It seemed not unlike the the fiascos mm -hmm. uh, of American policies, not only American policies but policies generally speaking that happen all the time. Our yeah. inability to speak to others if they are really different. Well, because I feel like that uh, Waco is a really important first step in creating the political climate that we have now. So if you're trying to understand where does this kind of division and incivility come from, it doesn't come from nowhere. It come, there are a series of kind of crucial events, I feel like, in a row in the early 90s that served to sort of set the stage for what we've been experiencing politically for the last 20 years. And Waco is one of the Waco is the, I think you can, for example, if you want to talk about where does the Tea Party come from, kind of comes from Waco, among other things, but legitimately, a group of people in America said, whoa, you know, a group of uh, radical, but, um, or eccentric believers got murdered by the government. That's not going to make you feel fondly towards your government, right? That, that kind of spirit insurrectionist spirit that you saw in the Tea Party comes from events like this. In other words, my point is that that kind of event has enormous downstream consequences that you don't think of in the moment. And this is a, I was interested in this because that's a huge theme in David and Goliath. Yes. Um, in particular, yes. The, the chapter on uh, Northern Ireland. Yes. And chapter on Northern Ireland is supposed to be an allegory for our involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that is, you do something in the moment and you think it's all about resolving the situation in front of you and you forget you have created a class of antagonisms that will last a generation. I, when I was, I didn't write about it in the book, but when I was in Belfast, um, when I was doing reporting for that chapter, I went, there was a 20th anniversary, was it 20th anniversary? Yeah, there was a, there was a, uh, uh, an incident in a neighborhood called Ballamurphy in West Belfast in the early uh, 70s, very early on in the, in the Troubles. And a series of British, a group of British soldiers fired on a crowd of Catholics and killed a number of them. And guaranteed that everyone in England has forgotten about this. No one remembers the shooting in Ballamurphy, particularly in the context of the 20 years of the Troubles. But I went to this sort of evening in the Ballamurphy Town Center um, that was in commemoration of the anniversary of the Ballamurphy thing. And what was, it, what was so incredibly, what floored me was that you would have thought the shootings had happened yesterday. That people were crying and screaming at each other. There was a, they had brought in a British soldier 
who wasn't even present in Northern Ireland at the time of the shooting, but just a soldier who felt bad at what had happened and had come back to Northern Ireland to kind of talk about his experience. And the amount of anger in the room at this representative of the British military was so extraordinary. And I went away thinking, you know, this, multiply this times a thousand and you have Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan, right? A residue of ill will which will last a generation. And you, that doesn't mean you can't act in those places, but it does mean that when you act, you have to fit that into your equation. You are creating, when you send a drone and you kill someone, you're solving a problem now with the drone, maybe. the person you kill, maybe, but you are also creating a long-term problem with that person's families and family and relatives and et cetera, et cetera. That will last 20 years or 30 years. Have you, have you factored that into your equation? That's the thing I don't think we do. Well, and I, I think your, your piece, to come back to this piece that everybody can read, it's out now on, on the newsstand, that is what your piece on Waco is about. It's also in part the extraordinary, I mean, to put it kindly, the extraordinary impatience of the FBI. Yeah. I mean, an impatience that comes from a phenomenal ignorance and a desire to act and not understand. Yeah. Yeah, no, it it's, was not our, not your finest hour. <laughs> we don't do this kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know how, how, how implic... But um, in this piece, are you saying that we're not tolerant enough? I mean, because you use the word tolerance and it mm -hmm. comes up again and again. And I'm, I mean, that word is both a word I like and I don't quite know how to... Well, I'd like you to talk about Well, there's about limits. It. I mean, the thing that's interesting about Waco is that the same people who moved so aggressively and unconscionably against the Branch Davidians Many of those people were probably themselves Christians. They weren't hostile to religion. It's just that they were, their willingness to accept alternate forms of religiosity had clear boundaries. And those boundaries were quite narrow. And that, that's what interests me, is that we are, we're willing to be tolerant up to a point. A point. And I make the point in the, in, the, um, in the article that much of what we call tolerance in this country um, and pat ourselves on the back for doing is the lamest kind of tolerance. Give the examples it's because... What they, we they call tolerance in this country is when people who are unlike us want to be like us. And when we decide to accept someone who's not like us and who wants to be like us, we pat ourselves on the back. We feel good. So we feel good. So when gays want to marry, want to be like us and get married, and we finally get around to saying, okay, we think, oh, isn't that courageous of me, finally accept gay people for wanting to be like us. Sorry, it's not, you don't get points for accepting someone who wants to be just like you, right? You get points for accepting someone who doesn't want to be like you. That's where the difficulty lies, right? So once again, I mean, we come back to this thing, yeah. how we have redefined these words so that they have no meaning, right? That's why I, I, I said earlier, the word tolerance is, is very, 
I find it difficult to understand. I remember an incredibly, um, how should I say, contentious statement mm -hmm. by the French, uh, 20th, early 20th century French poet named Paul, Paul Claudel, who said, La tolérance, il y a des maisons pour cela. Tolerance, there are homes for that, there are houses for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the word tolerance rubbed him really the wrong way because it yeah. can so often just make us feel good. Yeah. It can make us feel cheap. Li cheap, liberal. I mean, you mentioned Jews joining. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. The notion that you should get points for uh, accepting Jews in your country club at the moment they want to be exactly like you and spend their time playing golf is like, why is that? You know, at the, mo at the moment, they have chosen to mimic the kind of bad habits of the American wasp, the upper middle class. That's tolerance. <laughs> I don't want to suggest that playing golf is a bad habit, but it seems that way. Eat bad food and play golf. Like, that's all right, finally, we'll let you in. You can eat at the buffet with the rest of us. I mean, is it, is it a. Um Is it a problem of imagination? In, uh, what I want to say is somehow um, I love speaking with people who are totally unlike myself. No, <laughs> I love speaking with you. Mm -hmm. Um, it's great fun, Malcolm. And there have nearly been tears, so I feel like we're doing well. <laughs> but speaking with Mike Tyson on uh -huh. the stage, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, what on earth do I have in common with Mike Tyson? And he, you know, clearly said what I did for a living is what you tried to avoid all your life. Mm -hmm. When I took him to the reading room and to the special collections and we showed him a first edition of Machiavelli, he corrected our, one of our senior curators by saying there was an earlier edition of The Prince. Um, so, many, so many moments with him were so extraordinary and there is nothing in our childhoods or mm. in our later years that 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 link us mm -hmm. except the, tr the attempt in some way to try to imagine what it means and this is by the way i'm saying this it's a very short moment it's short-lived i don't have to continue the conversation beyond that moment on stage, but it had a huge effect uh, mm -hmm. on me. I feel that um, it, it was truly deeply transformative in some way to, to try to imagine what it felt like to be someone else, which is in fact the work of literature. When, when it's effective, you were talking about the English in a very comical way, but when it's effective, mm -hmm. it really puts you into somebody else's shoes, however uncomfortable those shoes are. Those are very nice, sweet moments, and I've just 
as you've noticed, patted myself on the shoulder nicely by saying that I was able to speak to Mike Tyson. Isn't this wonderful? Very good, Paulie. You did very well. I'm very proud of you. Very nice. Now you can go home. But in some way, we don't manage to do this in any sustained way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm curious if it's a lack of imagination, meaning true, deep imagination is a possibility of real empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, um, and also, it's also how you, um, it's a, also, it's a, it is a failure of imagination, a failure of, of a very specific kind of, <clears throat> of uh, a failure of categorization um, that it's what you choose to use to distinguish yourself from someone. You know, generally speaking, even if you put a diehard Republican and a diehard Democrat in the same room together and you ask them to make a list of what they believe in, the list of things they, the, of beliefs they agree on would dwarf the list of things they disagree on. But they only choose to talk about the, their moments of disagreement, which is an odd thing. Um, but if you just, if you just expand the, uh, the conversation, then you find that you're largely in, you agree on most things. I mean, the things you disagree on are relatively, in, in the grand scheme of things, trivial, right? I mean, we have knock them down, drag them out arguments in this country about whether the uh, capital gains tax should be, you know, 18% or 21%. It's not a... This doesn't describe an ideological difference. We pretend it does, but it doesn't. You know, it's a trivial difference. Do we make those differences up so as to create an illusion of difference? Is that what you're saying? Because I think there are, yeah. obviously. I think maybe you're it's making too little of a case of real differences which do, do exist. I mean, the real differences which mm -hmm. do exist is between this very large building and all the um, branch libraries that have not enough services. Yeah. So they are... You're back to that, are you? Well, back to that. Well, back to that in some way. Well, I'm back to that in... in some, you have to scratch. Well, I'm back to that, but not really about the library, because, okay, that's very important. I'm employed here. It's very important. These are situations which are, I should be very careful about, and I'm very careful for the moment about them, but it has also to do with issues pertaining to how we live our lives and what yeah. is around us. You know, it's very narcissism of small differences, right? It's, mm, yeah. Can I tell? Can I do a digression? Yeah, please, uh, My friend Bruce, uh, upon observing the common phenomenon that when you meet someone for a drink or something, the person who is closest to the bar is always the last to arrive, uh, and he describes that as the narcissism of small distances. I didn't even get a laugh out of you. you, you, no, you, you, you um, <laughs> I essentially told a Freudian joke to a guy who has made repeated references to psychoanalysis. You don't find that funny? But you see, the, the, you see, I what, think it's insanely what, hilarious. You know what? What is really? You know, <laughs> it's way, very like interesting. That. He came up with like that. He was yeah. like, I was describing this phenomenon. I was like, Bruce, you live next door. You're ten minutes late. I came from uptown, and he was like, it's the narcissism of small distances. You see, <laughs> you see, and isn't it interesting how? Um, certain, in certain areas, we are just blind and we don't get it. 
There's yeah. an, uh, an, uh, um, a, an English psychoanalyst right there. Is it possible you just lack a sense of humor? And it you're is trying to possible. It, 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 broader, it is possible. Maybe a, and well, I, a simpler I really, explanation here. I, I really, well, I maybe really, my joke's not funny. I really thank I, you for I that. Um, no, no, but it is, it is very funny. It is very funny. Um, we can move ten on. Years, yeah, ten years, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know where to go from here. Uh, <coughs> You didn't, qu you didn't quite answer that question, did you? Uh, not, not about um, the library, but laughter is not just ineffectual as a form of protest. It's actually oh, we can go back to that. Yeah, because um, it replaces protest. Because he would, since, you know... It was this great, this argument was made in a really, really brilliant piece in the London Review of Books um, by someone who, I, I hate to say I've forgotten who wrote it, but... Joseph Coe. <coughs> and he was pointing out, he had this great riff about British satire, the tradition of British satire, and how at the end of the day, um, many of the most important figures in English satire, who, when they were engaged in the act of what they thought was, um, you know, tearing the British establishment down a peg, thought they, thought they were engaged in a revolution, that they were, later looking back on it, they were like, you know what? We weren't. We're what not we were doing, doing very is much. We were uh, providing people with uh, a, really a kind of uh, uh, outlet for their uh, frustrations that allowed them to circumvent the harder issue of doing something about. Um, and I think the same is true. As much as I love those shows, uh, John Stewart and 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 um, Stephen Colbert, I don't know. I don't know when, at the end of the day whether um, cloaking political discourse in that kind of satirical, ironic language helps. I, I worry helps. that it. I, I worry that it, it it allows you to laugh it off. Once you have turned George Bush into a laughing stock, then you're dodging the harder issues about the real differences. Yeah, maybe you're, you, are, you are pretending, or you've just taken the conversation uh, down a notch, when sometimes the conversation deserves to be... Serious. Serious, you know? And it's, it's also my problem when that, the thing that I did not express well in that whole snark, smarm thing, which is that, uh, that tone, the introduction of that kind of ironic or hostile or, in, or cynical, sarcastic tone, that sh it, it, it just it limits your possibilities in argument. It, it closes all kinds of doors, right? It, and that's crazy if you want to have a real conversation. It's not crazy if you want to discuss something that's relatively trivial, um, but it is crazy if you really want to have a uh, you know, it, a it, proper discussion. It, it's interesting to me because it make, what, what flashed through my mind, perhaps an analytical mode of thinking for the moment is the fact that you're mentioning this after having spoken earlier on that in your family there wasn't any small talk. And the connection between that and, you know, kind of la risée, the laughter. I mm. saw you on Jon Stewart yesterday. I looked at the last show you did um, with <laughs> him. And I, 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 I mean, maybe it's hard for you to say anything real here. Uh, because you want to be, 
I suppose, invited back to his show. But I just was wondering, <laughs> I just was but I was wondering how, and I don't know you well at yeah. all, but how, how, how you felt there, because I Well, just, something happened, okay. which happens to me a lot, but it so happened, it happened at the very wrong moment. In the middle of the interview, I got distracted, and I started sort of daydreaming, and I missed a question. And Which I think I, I missed your joke by going like that in a, a minute oh, ago. I see, yeah. yeah, that was Same, not a uh, lack of humor. It was just. But I, my mind sort of wandered. Something happened in the audience, and I kind of remember. He asked a question, I didn't hear it. And so I said, I sort of looked at him, and I was like, oh my God, this is like <laughs> the wrong time to zone out. And so I said, oh, I don't really know the answer, meaning I don't know what you said. And then. He then had great sport with the fact that I didn't have an answer to a relatively obvious question, but it's a threw the whole thing off. You can't, your mind can't, you know, you only have two minutes. If your mind wanders for 10 seconds, that's, that's it. you know, that's a big chunk of time. That's like, it's like a Rip Van Winkle so, moment so, so, in the middle so of the interview. The, so this is probably what I felt watching it yesterday because there was, a, there was, a mo there was really a moment where, um, I thought when you said, I don't know, that you were being modest. No, no, I didn't no. hear the question. I, yeah. I, something, you know, caught my eye. You mind yeah, wanders. Of course, it's of hard. Course. No, 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 I, under, I, I completely understand this. You know, in terms of, of, of humor and, and, and um, laughter, I'm wondering if the ineffectual quality that maybe laughter may have in our public civic discourse is not unlike the kind of scruple and reserve you seem to have in thinking that forms of social media really have an effect in changing the world. Yeah. It's Twitter. Well, that article you know, I wrote yes. along. Well, I was, I was responding to the, what I thought then and continue to believe now was the rather extraordinary notion that uh, Twitter was somehow behind revolutions, which I thought was a kind of grandiose claim for 142 characters. People make it. Um, but, uh, and I, you know, that, that rhetoric has died down. I don't think people make those kind of claims anymore. But there was this sort of moment. The Arab. There was a, there was a, and I think it's appropriate for uh, the enthusiasm that greets each new um, technological uh, uh, advance is a, it's good. It's appropriate. I mean, it helps us to figure out what it's useful for. But there was that the flush of enthusiasm over Twitter happened to coincide with um, Arab Spring, and there was this kind of crazy talk about how, were it not for Twitter, Mubarak would still be in power. Well, I if I was an Egyptian militant, I would be quite upset about the notion that Biz Stone was what stood between me and democracy. Um, you know, that seems kind of Crazy. In closing, Malcolm, before we open it up um, to, to, to the public here at the public library, um, what have you changed your mind about? Oh, well, lots of things. Do you mean so, broad, big things or little things? <laughs> you know, I, I feel like... I feel like, you know, that, that wonderful line of Woody Allen who says at the end of one of his shows, he says, I'd love to leave you on a positive note. Will you accept two negatives? Well, not, not, <laughs> not, 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 not quite that way, but maybe, maybe, maybe I could ask you for 
if you would be kind enough for one big thing and one small thing, in one whichever thing. order you wish. Uh, what have I changed my mind about? That's a good question. I mean, I, uh, hmm. I mean, I sort of, it's an odd question to answer because I feel I change my mind all the time. And I, uh, I get, um, I sort of think that's your responsibility as a person, human being, is to constantly be updating your positions on as many things as possible. And if you don't contradict yourself on a regular basis, then you're not um, thinking. So, you know, you, know, you know, Robert Frost once said that a liberal is someone who never takes his own side in an argument. <laughs> um, um, I had a, for example, in David and Goliath, I have a discussion of uh, affirmative action, which contradicts a position I took in Outliers, and which I acknowledge and say, look, yeah. I changed my mind. Uh, that I, in writing David and Goliath, became not an opponent of affirmative action, but much more aware of the ways in which it can be a self-defeating strategy. Um, and it might not be the most appropriate way to address systematic um, economic, uh, social inequality. Um, and that was out of a long conversations with people and also with sort of looking at the data of this question of what happens. What happens when you put people in environments where they are likely to be at the bottom of their class? Um, and the answer is that being at the bottom of a class uh, is a, a, not a terribly attractive um, or good place to be, and it has all kinds of really deleterious consequences. And so if, if the effect of affirmative action is to take someone who would ordinarily have a decent shot at being at the head of their class and to put them in an environment where they're more likely to be at the bottom, it might not be helpful. Um, and we see that, that has nothing to do with race. We see that with anyone, and that's what the chapter in David and Goliath is all about, is that you take anyone and you put them in an environment where they're trying to do something difficult and they're in the bottom of their class, their failure rates will be far higher than they would be otherwise. Your relative position to your peers is hugely deterministic of your uh, performance. And we have pursued a strategy uh, to, to write um, historical wrongs in violation of psychological principles. Um, we've let our... And we continue to. We continue to. We do to, to, to. students of, of color what we would never do to our own children, right? If, you know, you talk to a parent, if you have a child who is doing well at a medium college, um, and you said, I can wave a wand. Say your kid is studying engineering at uh, the University of Tennessee, and I said, to, and in the top third of their class, and I said, okay, I can wave a wand and get your kid into Caltech to do engineering. Would you say yes? The answer is no, you would say no, that's crazy. If you went to Caltech, you're gonna get creamed, right? Why would you willingly send a kid who is in the 75th percentile in the world to a place where every single person has an IQ of 170. Crazy, right? Well, that's a version of what we do with affirmative action. We do the thing we would never do in, other, in many circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean it's always a bad idea. It means that you have to be selective in how you use that strategy. There are some students for whom it's a brilliant idea. But you can't use it because as a kind of... Because you push them into... Yeah, but it's a, it has to be case by case. It cannot be as a matter of kind of blind policy. And more importantly, 
it cannot be used to discharge your obligation towards uh, the greater cause of, of, of righting historical wrongs. So what happens now is you take a deeply flawed policy, you use it as in a kind of blanket, blind way, and then you say, I'm done. Nonsense, right? You're not, A, you're not done, and B, the policy's not, is, the way you're using the policy is not all that intelligent. So that, I feel like I drank the Kool-Aid a little bit too much in Outliers. And then when, when I, in David and Goliath, I was like, you know what? No, this is a, there's a smarter way to think about this issue. Um, and I think that's, that ought to happen every time I write a book, if I'm a... Well, you know, I ask you that question in part because I once had the pleasure of speaking on the stage with Sadie Smith, who wrote a mm. book called Changing My Mind. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I mean, you know, how do we change our mind? How does mm -hmm. that happen? But we, um, you know, what... You, I, I, brought, I remember bringing this up. I was in my book tour, and I was in Salt Lake City, and was talking about this, and it, this very issue of changing your mind. And there was this incredible kind of interest in that note. And I realized later it was because they felt, and I think very correctly, that Mitt Romney was treated unfairly for having changed his mind about healthcare reform, right? You he should be allowed to do consistent. that. He, I mean, he put in, he, yeah, he did changing, a version of Obamacare. Changing one's mind uh, means you're not consistent. You should, right. yeah. Of all the things, I have, you know, I was not someone who would have voted for Mitt Romney. I'm not a supporter of many of his beliefs. But I do think it was wrong to criticize him for once being in favor of universal health care and then saying, I'm no longer in favor of it when he was a Republican candidate. If you create a system where you make it impossible politically for people to change your mind, then you're in trouble, right? It should be welcomed. If someone stands up and says, you know, I thought about it, and there's new evidence, you know. Brings us back to uh, the problem with journalism, and you've said this. Exactly. I have, you, I have you on tape. I have you on tape saying this. Well, so what? I have you on I tape. Mean, I have you on tape for the whole evening, which is great. Now, something else. Um, <laughs> let's end with this by saying, give me an example of a small thing. Oh. Uh, well, there's so many. I just, mean, just. Pick two. I, I changed my mind last week about whether I wanted to have really long hair. <laughs> now look at what's happened. I um, changed my mind about, uh, I changed my mind about, f well, it's a long process, but uh, you know, I'm changing my mind about football slowly, but surely. Uh, I've gone the, you, you've lost me there, so say something about football that. Football is a sport where they throw a, <laughs> it's, you, you, you know, you, you know how to speak to yes, me. Yes, no, yeah, I know, you, I know you, that, that you, I should really... It's so like it's my a, mother in yeah, the movies. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a motion picture, Mom, and they, they take... Anyway, um, so no, uh, I'm a huge football fan, but I've, you know, I've been recently uh, become radicalized by all of this concussion stuff. Um, actually, I went... It was really interesting. I, so I, I wrote this... I was asked to give a talk at... Pen, about a year ago, and uh, the topic was on proof. How, and I was, I was just told to give a talk on proof. So it's like a couple thousand kids stand up in the thing, and my point was, how much proof do you need before you change your mind about something, right? And so I started out talking about how long it took the uh, people in the world of coal mining to accept the evidence on black lung disease, 
Basically, we discover black lung disease in the late 19th century, and not until the 1950s did the industry finally get around to saying, you know what, it's killing people. Right? For 70 years, they were just massive denial. And why was there massive denial? Because they kept on saying, yeah, we don't have enough proof. Right? And my point was, there is a there are, ought to be two standards here. There is the standard that you use for public precautionary action, and there's a standard you use for scientific certainty, and they're different, right? When you're dealing with something with unknown risks, you have to get ahead of the problem. And, and then it, my point was, so this was the first 40 minutes, and the kids are saying, what is this? Where is this leading? And then I said, you know, we, you know, we would never do this today, would we? Wrong. We're doing it with football. This is exactly the story of football. We have not enough evidence to make a scientific, scientifically certain case that the game is dangerous, but enough to say you shouldn't be playing it in colleges. You shouldn't be taking kid, kids, they are kids, right? 18, 19 year old kids who, are, who you have a responsibility to educate. You shouldn't be putting them on a field where they are engaging in activities which for some percentage of them, will lead to profound long-term health consequences. It's crazy, right? And this was a particular relevance at Penn because a year before, the captain of the Penn football team had committed suicide in his room, and when they did an autopsy on his brain, they, dis they discovered that he had CTE, the condition caused by repeated brain trauma on the football field. And what was the reaction of Penn to this guy's suicide? The captain of the football team, right? The reaction was no reaction, nothing. A lawyered up statement where the administration said, you know, well, we, but you should know, and then they went back to playing football. And by the way, why is Penn playing football? Like, it's not like <laughs> their Oklahoma where it, where it has some larger social function. I mean, the whole thing was insanity. So here I was like, Trying to say, what's the matter with you people? How were you greeted by them? What's that? How were you greeted by the Penn students? Did they? Well, it, it, actually, it, the story gets so, much, so bizarre. I thought they would be upset about that I was attacking their beloved sport of football. In fact, the students were like, I thought we were, because I, I told them they should all be boycotting football games. And one student raised his hand and said, I thought we already were boycotting football games. <laughs> um, no, but what was upsetting to them was that I was attacking uh, the university. And I realized this is this fascinating moment when you realize you're old. Because in my generation, that's what you did. I mean, <laughs> the point of going to college was to seize every conceivable opportunity to tear down the administration, right? <laughs> Even if it was... But these guys, I realized they are so deeply invested in the brand name of Penn and the fact that they're all spending like 50 grand to and, go there. And terribly and conservative it's in like, that way. It's like I'm, you know, you, you, now I'm, it's personal. You're, if you attack the administration, you're possibly harming the value of my degree. And they got, they were actually quite upset by the words I had, the harsh words I had for their administration, which was like, I was so not expecting that. I was like, whoa, you're, you know, Real, that's, that's the thing that's getting upset. That's, fantastic. that's fantastically interesting to me. I mean, I would never in a million years have thought that um, they would have... I, I had it backwards. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
you can do. So come up. For those people who have to leave, leave. For those who can stay, stay, and ask a few good questions. Hello, Mr. Gladwell. I love your books. I've read every one of them. I am an aspiring writer myself, and my question for you is, as a non-expert who conducts the hard research to become an expert on sizable um, compendium of materials for your chapters and your books to develop your themes, what's the self-talk that you have to get past critics who criticize you for overgeneralizing on occasion? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I don't consider, when I'm told that I generalize, uh, uh, my response is always, well, of course I do. So I, I guess I'm in agreement with them. Um, that's the point, to generalize. If you don't generalize, then you're not doing your job as a journalist. Your job is to take something that is inaccessible and make it accessible. So when I am criticized for making things accessible, I'm always left, um, I'm always a little bit uh, puzzled. Um, uh, I'm, uh, so yeah, I don't, so I don't, I've never, I've never taken that line of um, response that seriously. Um, or at least I've chosen to interpret it as a compliment. Thank you. Are you able to take three questions together? Yeah. Let's take three questions together. Um, so, I don't know how, yeah, yeah. quick question then. Exactly. Uh, thank you. We heard the, um, the advice that your father had for you, the seven words. What is the advice that you would have for your own children? Okay. Okay. There's, there's a book that's been written, I can't remember the name of the book, it's being spoken about on NPR at the moment, but the quote from the book that I'd like you to react to is that the most dangerous type of person is a two-year-old that never grew up. Oh. Okay. One more. You said something along the lines of, when it comes to public safety, the threshold for proof should be lower than rigorous scientific proof. Isn't that the exact same logic that leads to things like Waco, Afghanistan, Iraq? When do we apply you know, the various rigors for proof? And how do we yeah. decide when to apply those? Um, okay, I'll take them in reverse order. Uh, the last one, I should have added that when you're dealing with something that is uh, inconsequential, ultimately. I mean, when you're dealing with a recreational activity, I think, uh, that, that was my point about football. It's like, we're not dealing with a weighty issue here. You're dealing with something you're doing on the side. Um, so when it comes to something that trivial, you don't need a lot of proof to take a precautionary step in the, in the face of imagined risk. Um, it's a tougher question when the thing that you're engaged in, if, if I thought that some portion of kids while studying uh, physics, um, you know, their health was being at risk, that's harder because you have to study physics, right? So now we have to weigh these two things. But football isn't physics. It's particularly for those who go to Penn, it's very much a marginal activity. Um, so that's, I should have added that. That was the crucial part of the... Um, uh, the most dangerous person is a two-year-old who hasn't grown up. Um, yes, I would say. I don't know what to say, except that I would agree. I think that's kind of, kind of um, hilarious and um, true. Uh, um, and uh, um, I hope I don't fall into that category myself. I, I don't think it was an idea. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, um, and then the third one was, oh, what seven words, what advice would I give my, or what advice would I give my own children? Um, 
uh, probably not to. I mean, in light of the advice my father gave me, the advice I, give, I would give to my own children was not to take my advice seriously. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I think um, the thing uh, in general that I would say to young people is I think that um, uh, the most important thing to do if you are young in America is to leave America. I don't mean permanently, but I mean... Travel. That not, and more than travel, like, I sort of think that, um, like, I'm always puzzled by the notion of a semester abroad. Um, a, the places people choose to go uh, on their semester abroad, in my experience, when I hear from people, tend to very closely approximate the places they left. And that is to say, they're simply, if, you go, if you're going to NYU and then you do a semester abroad at the Sorbonne, you are doing a version of NYU, right? There's sort of no point. The food's slightly different. The currency's different. Not that different anymore. Not that yeah, different yeah. anymore. The language. But you've not, you know, the point of that thing is to do something that's very different. And by the way... Which is not so dissimilar from things we spoke about earlier connected to tolerance. Yes. Right. The, the point to is to really expand your horizon. And exact words my father uses. Yes. Expand your horizon. Yeah. Anyway, continue. No, that's... So I, I sort of think it should be... We should reverse it. That it should be the default mode that every... That part of a university education is going to a very, very different culture for at least a year, if not two years. And it should be unusual if you choose to stay in one place. Um, that this is this golden opportunity to leave and to, you know, to be, to explore safely, which is what the whole point of university is. It's safe exploration, right? It's this magical moment when you have license to do all kinds of really radical things. You know, my, my, my 96-year-old father says to me now about my own children, he says, just don't coddle them. Yeah. Just don't coddle them. And uh, my mother was very ill for a long time, and it w they live in my, they, my mother died recently, but they live in, lived in, they live in, my father lives in Belgium, and it was a Janu uh, January months, and there was no public transportation of any sort, there were no taxis. So my father did what he did when he was 18 years old in 1936. He hitchhiked. And he said, I don't know how people manage who don't hitchhike. <laughs> I mean, how, how do they get home? And so this 95-year-old man was picked up. He said, I mean, you know, yeah. and, I, and he said to me, are you great. teaching your children to hitchhike? Yeah. I mean, and, and what did you say to that, Paul? Pardon? I, I completely <laughs> agree my wife doesn't. Next three questions. <laughs> We're taking three more, so go, so, four more. Go ahead. So much of your books are about seeing data and seeing threads in them that no one else has done. So what I'm wondering is a kind of practical question. How do you see that data? Like, do you print it out and like circle numbers that interest you? Or do you like make graphs and see it visually? How, I'm such a not numbers person that it's always fascinating yeah. when you like pull out threads. So I'm wondering how you do that. Data. Data, yeah. Uh, next question is, um, what do you make as a journalist, what do you make of the incessant coverage of the downing of the Malaysian Airlines uh, aircraft, and especially when so much of the talk is speculation? In your, in your 2008 uh, article for The New Yorker on uh, 
late bloomers and early bloomers, do you think that folks like uh, Paul Cezanne or um, Men Fountain would have been as gentle and friendly as they were if they hadn't had success in their later life? What do you think is the role of uh, academia in modern life with the availability of very good stuff out there outside the universities? Yeah. Okay. Say it again. Uh, I could, you that, heard it. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so last one first. Uh, I sort of think that the, what is the role of, academic, of academia um, when there is now so much knowledge available outside of, or, or at least the walls of academia are now so permeable? Um, <laughs> I think of it as being more in, it's funny, I spent the morning on, there's this database um, out of Johns Hopkins where you can basically read the table of contents of any journal you want forever. Um, and I do that sometimes. I'm and glad it's like you the came weirdest, tonight. <laughs> yeah. It's, and I, I sort of think that um, uh, this, the, the kind of work that goes on in, acad in academic life is so much more important now than it's ever been before. Because the, the, the idea of what academics, what academia is, is institutionalized reflection. And uh, the reflection has vanished from everywhere else. So the, the finally we have, you know, we are left with this group of people and we give them, we put them in a safe institutional environment. We put a, we give them all kinds of job security. We put a wall around them. All the things are crucial because they're doing something which just is impossible in any other profession now, which is they're just thinking and they're taking their time and they're ruminating and they're not caught up in the moment. And so to, when I look at a scientific journal or a social sciences journal and I see someone writing about something that happened in, you know, 1871 or 19... 50, my heart goes out to them. I think that's, fin that's fantastic, right? That someone is at least um, going back and, um, uh, and, and, and trying to make sense of all of this stuff that's happened. So I, I'm, you know, the, these places are increasingly sacred, I think, um, in the modern world. Second question, the second from the last question was about I asked you Malay if you oh, was about Malaysia, yeah. Oh yeah, I had written chatter, this piece about yeah. um, late bloomers uh, years ago, and I gave the example of Paul Cezanne and also Ben Fountain, the marvelous novelist who doesn't really break through as a novelist until his late 40s. Um, and uh, the uh, and I realized the question. I think where the questioner was going was that um, you know I chose as my examples two people who had lots of early struggle that was, um, uh, that ended with success. But of course, there's a much larger universe of people who have lots of early struggle that never ends in success. So when you talk about late bloomers and you choose to focus only on the, um, on the breakthroughs, you're, it's, a, it's a, um, a very small sample. It's not, and I, but, um, and I thought a lot about that. Um, and I sort of tried to argue in the piece that tried to make that point that it's a high-risk business. The late bloomer is engaged in the highest risk of all. Um, that if you choose to persevere for years and years and years, you have to know the odds increasingly are against you each year. And how passes. do you sustain? Because yeah. Cezanne, in, in the case of Cezanne, he was sustained in Bias. blooming late. 
in some way. Yeah, by his Volar father's money and, and by uh, his friends. Yeah, yeah. And Volar um, gave him this incredible fortune and so many things permitted him. That was the point of the piece, yeah. was that the, 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 the late bloomer is socially dependent in a way that the precocious person is not. And that's the I crucial see. difference. That, so that all of these um, late blooming stories, there are versions of love stories. Um, they're all about someone in combination with someone else, right? Uh, but precociousness is not. Precociousness is... Um, the Wunderkind story yeah, is a different is, story. Is all, is that, that, that mythology, at least, is... Which is a highly romantic mythology is in the some heroic, ways. the single heroic um, uh, leader. Because thinker. in some way, what happens when we're no longer promising, you know, in some strange way, where when we say of a young person, he's promising, and then... Yeah. That moment, there's a moment where that stops. Yes. Right? You're, you're not quite. Yes. But then, if you're sustained by the environment, I mean, this is what so many of your books are about, mm. is the context in which, and that's what interested me so much in the last chapter of Outliers, the mm. context in which your grandmother lived, and yeah. what that context afforded two generations later. Yeah. Anyway, let's go no, back to, right. I don't want to take the questions away. Then there was a data, Malaysian. Data. The Malaysian. Malaysian. Airliner. Yeah, um, yes, how sorry. do I respond to all of that speculation? That chatter. Well, it's a, I mean, that story is, it's a ghost story, right? I mean, the problem, not the, pro the problem is the wrong word, but the central, the reason we were so fascinated was that, by that story, is that the, is the narrative the, the narrative structure of the story was perfect. I mean, it was, how could you not be? I mean, even, and it, the, the perfection of the, I use that word in quotes because it's tragedy, but you know, you can't, it's, the, the plane disappears into the, you know, so of course we're gonna be obsessed with it and drawn to it and that will, it, uh, that will um, uh, uh, incite all kinds of, of, um, of uh, wild speculation about what happened. But, you know, it's an irresistible Ooh. tale, that um, particular one. I mean, it goes, goes back to our discussion of stories. There are certain stories that are just, um, you know, they're riveting, and that's one of, that was one of them. Um, uh, I have a, I, I became good friends with this very senior pilot at Emirates when I was writing Outliers, and I, I found myself, I hadn't talked to the guy in like two years, I was like emailing with him about what was your theory? I mean, he's, he's actually a, a Sri Lankan. He's from that part of the world and flies in that part of the world. And I was like, what happened? You know, he was like going through and he was, it was I mean, I was just, everything you said was like, oh my God, so interesting, you know, even though he didn't know either. I mean, he was kind of, um, but he, anyway. So it was, it's just, that's just. The but so much, so much written about it and then so little, I mean, I, the thing that fascinated me was how the first line of explanations was about the possibility of terrorist involvement, yeah. as opposed, I would have thought that would have been the last line of explanation. Because the pilots, you know, when I emailed my friend the pilot, his initial impulse was to think of this entirely as something going on between the pilot and the plane. Electrical fire, whatever it was, that's how he's, the, Terrorism was like way down on his list, but we have this, that's our first kind of go-to in, I mean, for understandable reasons. Um, I, I was in, I happened, I was in LA two weeks ago, 
there's an earthquake, three o'clock in the morning, rumble, rumble, rumble. I wake up like this, what's my first thought? A bomb has gone off, right? That's, you know, that's what it means to be living in America in 2014, that you're mistaking um, earthquakes for acts of terrorism. That's your first impulse. It's just done, that's just the way we're programmed to think at the moment, I suppose. Um, and in, in closing data, Oh, data. Uh, I, I, I want to precede it by a line that I love. I was going to ask you about big data. Do you know this Frank Zappa line, data is not information, Informa information is not knowledge, knowledge is not wisdom? Oh, that's interesting. That's very lovely. Um, I'll send it well to you. Um, I, uh, how do I deal with data? Well, I suppose I deal with all of these things. Um, you know, the, the reason you do reporting is, one of the reasons, is you want to know uh, what sticks, what has stuck in people's mind. And this relates to the data question, that the way to make sense of data is to talk to people who produced it and figure out what, when they talk about that thing, what's the first thing they talk about? So what do they zero in on? That's what you want to know, right? And I thought of this because I was, I'm doing this piece about the mafia at the moment, and I was talking to this guy who's an expert on the mob in New York. Of course, the mob in New York is, was hugely implicated in the construction industry, right? It's the most mobbed up of all the industries. So I'm talking to this guy, and he starts talking about Robert Caro's book on, um, on Moses, on Robert Moses. And I said, he goes, of course, he goes, he makes some disparaging comment about that book. I was like, first of all, in my entire history. I've never heard anyone say anything bad about Robert Caro. So I perked up. Really? And he goes, yeah, guy writes a 700-page book basically about the construction industry in New York. Never mentions the mob. I was like, oh my God, that's so true. <laughs> he never... So here was this case of a guy, the first time in history someone has said to Robert Caro, you left something out. out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that sticks in your... Like, that's what you want, right? You want to know, oh. Next yeah. edition, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Thank you very much. <laughs>